0: I don't know if you know what a perfect game is. Do you know what a perfect game is in baseball or softball? Yeah, me either, I had to look it up. Perfect game is uh, something the pitcher accomplishes, which means no one on the other team was able to gain a base based on uh, their pitching. So it's a no hitter, nobody gets on base. Well, a high school softball pitcher pitched a perfect game and lost. Now, the baseball fans in the room are going, not possible. You can't lose if you pitch a perfect game because the other team can't score. Here's what happens. She pitches the perfect game, and it ends at a tie, 0-0. And in that particular high school league down in California... (laughs) Say no more, I guess. All right, you're with me. In order to move things along so that it's not extra innings for the rest of time, all the extra innings start with a player on second base. So the extra inning start, she pitches, the catcher mishandles a pitch, and the runner advances from second to third. The catcher then, instead of throwing it back to the pitcher or guarding home, throws it to the third baseman, who mishandles the catch, and the runner is able to go home. So the pitcher ends the game credited with a perfect game and a loss. Now if you would have asked this pitcher before the game, hey, you're going to get a perfect game today, she would have been ecstatic. But now the disappointment, I pitched a perfect game, that's unbelievable, but, but, but we still lost. The assumption would be, if something this good is happening, then other good things are going to happen. This is exactly where we find ourselves in Jerusalem, as Jesus is entering Jerusalem. The assumption is, Jesus is here, the King of the Jews is here, the Messiah is here, so therefore all kinds of good things are about to happen. This is the perfect time to be a Jew Living in Jerusalem, the king is here. So this is the question we want to ask when we are going to discuss this morning the arrival of the king. What do we do when Jesus disappoints? What do we do when Jesus disappoints? Look at the passage in Luke chapter 19. Beginning verse 28, Jesus had said these things and he talked to his disciples and he told his disciples, go into the village of Head. He wasn't talking about Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a little bit too big to be considered a village. He was probably sending them into Bethany or Bethphage and said, go in, find a donkey, bring it to me, and I'm going to ride a donkey into Jerusalem. Now geographically, I don't know if you've got a Bible map in the back of your Bible or on your app. You can look and there's Jerusalem and you'll see the temple and the Mount of Olives and Bethany are just directly due east of the temple. And so he's going to ride a donkey down the Mount of Olives, which is due east of the temple, and it's a pretty steep incline if you've been there, and he's going to ride right into the eastern gate of the temple is where he would be headed. Oh, this is very exciting stuff for a Jew at that time. This is the glory of the Messiah returning to his people. The arrival of the king. Here we see here the glory of his redemption. Jesus is going to fulfill all kinds of prophecies that have been written about him. When Solomon was made king, after David had began to step down before his death, David gave the command to his servants, go get my donkey and put my son on it and ride him to his coronation. Later, when Jehu becomes king, he rides also a donkey as a king would, and as he was riding to his coronation, everyone was throwing their coats down on the ground for Jehu to ride in. But most notably, of course, is Zechariah chapter 9, beginning in verse 8. This is what everyone would have thought of when they see Jesus coming down the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. This is the Verses in Zechariah 9, verses 8 and 9, the prophet says this about God. He, that is God, will encamp at my house as a guard. None will be able to march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. Excuse me, for I now see with my own eyes. God is prophesying no oppressor will ever harm my home, my house again. The Jews would like that sitting under Roman rule, wouldn't they? What will mark this? This is what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. This is verse 9 of Zechariah 9. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So in their mind, Zechariah 9, verse 8 says, God is going to send his king, and no oppressor will ever again be able to harm his house. And that king is going to come humbly on a donkey. And now we have Jesus riding a donkey down the western slope of the Mount of Olives, headed towards his house, the temple. You can imagine how excited the people were. Just one side note, if you'll remember back to the tabernacle in the wilderness... The tribes were arranged in camping formation when they would make camp. The tabernacle would be set up, and the tribes would camp in a certain order around camp. And due east of the tabernacle, the entrance of the tabernacle faced east. And due east of the tabernacle, what tribe was that? Any guesses? Judah. So now we have the lion of Judah coming in from the east to his house. Like I say, any Jew who had done his devotions that day would be going, mind blown, it's on It is happening, and so Jesus is coming, and he's fulfilling his prophecy, and his mission and his life is worthy of the praise that the people give him. They're spreading out their clothes, and his donkey is riding on him, and I don't know how many coats they had. I assume they had a guy at the back who'd grab the coat and throw it to the guy in the front, and they would just keep it going, unless they had miles of coats. I don't know. And he's worthy of praise. The the disciples are praising him loudly. And and it catches on. The multitude in Jerusalem is catching on. As as he's going in, it's just overwhelming the loudness. The crowd is praising him, it says, in Luke chapter 19. This is the song they're singing. This is verse 38 of Luke 19. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace is upon us from heaven. Glory to him. They're quoting from Psalm 118. And they've added the word king in there from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Listen to what that psalm says. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen to me. Psalm 118, 25 says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Lord, save us. Verse 26 Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. See, when they're singing this psalm, this Psalm 118, they're saying, He has come to save us. Our help has arrived. All of their needs were going to be met. The king is here. The Romans were going to be gone. There will be ample food. There will be lots of money. Everybody will have a job. The crowd is praising him, they're going nuts. We should just say this as a side note. For anybody who's involved in public ministry, such as Jesus was at this time, this would be the pinnacle. This is what you call a home run. This, everybody's coming forward. George Beverly Shea wasn't even there. The young people, look it up, Google it. You should know that name, by the way. This is the pinnacle moment. Of a public ministry. It's been leading to this moment where finally the sophisticated metropolitan Jews of Jerusalem, the educated, the wealthy, the influential, they finally are on the bandwagon. Team Jesus is on the move. This bothers some of the religious leaders, as you'll note there in Luke 19. You'll see the Pharisees confronting Jesus. They felt like this praise was out of line. And they are saying, listen, you should rebuke your disciples. There's a couple of problems from the Pharisees' perspective. Number one, this is getting out of hand. The Romans are going to get wind of this, and we're all going to die. That's a valid fear. Secondly, they might say, yeah, okay, you're a good teacher, Jesus, but now we're kind of going over the top here. It's one thing to appreciate your good teaching, but they're treating you as the Messiah, and they take exception to that. Jesus, you're a great teacher. You're, yeah, we like it when you heal people, sort of. Except when it takes the shine off of our stuff. But but let's keep it reasonable, Jesus. And Jesus says, listen, what's happening here is so powerful that if these folks somehow sat on their hands and decided not to praise, the rocks would start praising. That's how powerful the ministry of redemption is. He is saying praise is appropriate. Their praise is even fully appropriate despite the fact that their praise is somewhat misplaced. They're praising him because the Messiah has come thinking he's going to usher in the new kingdom. So they're a little bit off kilter, but nonetheless, he says their praise is appropriate even though it is slightly misplaced. Jesus is going to make clear through his teaching and his actions that this moment on the road of the Mount of Olives is not his culminating ministry moment. What's his culminating ministry moment? The cross, where there's no crowd, there's only mockery. But he's saying, what I am going to do, my redemptive work is so important, so powerful, that if, if my people weren't praising me, the rocks would praise me. This is in my notes, so I hesitate to say it, because that always gets me in trouble, and I know that's very entertaining for you. I think maybe we should consider that we should not be out-worshipped by people who are worshiping for the wrong reasons. We know why he came. we, we got the whole story front, beginning to end. And we've got people here who are worshiping Jesus for mostly wrong reasons and their worship was out of control, and I mean that in a nice way, not really out of control. Their worship was their whole heart, their whole mind. They were fully in. Their worship was so uh, all-encompassing that the religious people said, you know what? You ought to simmer down. And I don't think it's necessarily the best thing to be out-worshipped by people who are worshiping for the wrong reasons. I'll let you deal with that. I'm going to move on. The glory of Christ is the cross, not the crowd. The glory of Christ is not the glory of being recognized by people. The glory of Christ is being hung on a cross to bear our sin, to bear our shame. He reminds us of this over in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus says this to his disciples. From that time on, it was after an event in his life, from that time on, Jesus was showing his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and he had to be killed, and on the third day be raised from the dead. So he tells them plainly, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die there, I'm going to be raised from the dead. Peter, who had been reading some ministry books, and knew all about it, says this, Peter took him aside, and he began to rebuke him. That's awesome. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. He turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Jesus told this to his disciples. Anyone who will come after me must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So Jesus understood what the glory was. He understood what his purpose was. His purpose was to go to the cross. His purpose was to take our our sin on himself. And Jesus would not entrust himself to the crowds because Jesus knew what was in the heart of a man. Jesus' glory is on the cross. Jesus' glory is in an open tomb. Jesus glories in the fact that sin is done and death is done. All the oppressors are gone. What can sin do, do to us in Christ? Nothing. What can death do to us in Christ? Only usher us into his presence. Jesus has wiped away by his glorious redemption all of the oppressors. He has fulfilled all of the prophecies that were spoken of him. This is the passage I was looking for, John chapter 2, verse 24. I'm sure you've never looked in the Bible at the wrong spot. Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to the crowds because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about him for he himself knew what was in a man. So the question is, when we think about Christ, when we think about the work that he's doing, he's calling us not to look to the crowds, but he's calling us to look to him on the cross, offering us redemption. We look at what people might expect. We look at what uh, the world might expect of us. We look at uh, what we might expect of others. And Jesus says, here's what I am offering you. I am offering you victory over your sin. I'm offering you new life after death. He says, Look to me on the cross. Don't look to the crowds around you. Don't look to the culture around you. Look to the glory of redemption. The author of Hebrews reminds us of this. This is what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And you're familiar with it, so you can just listen to me read it. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, reminder who are those witnesses? Those are people in Hebrews chapter 11 that were described as having followed God by faith, meaning not the crowd. And for most of them, it resulted in their untimely death. So we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, all those who came before us who said, we will look to Christ and Christ alone. And he says this, lay aside every weight and the sin which clings to us and run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2 looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What do we do when Jesus disappoints? We have to understand this. The glory of Christ is redemption. The glory of Christ is the redemption he has offered to us to be received by faith that he died on the cross for sinners and he gives new life to us and a hope that we have for eternal life in him. The glory of Christ is redemption. That's a little bit hard for us to take, I think. We love Jesus, and I I wouldn't question that in you. But we love Jesus, and there's a number of things that we certainly hope he's going to do in our life. And the Bible here in Luke chapter 19 is going to describe two ways in which we don't really appreciate the glory of Christ's redemption, and we're looking for other things, and that's where disappointment comes around. The glory of Christ is redemption, and when we want something other than redemption from him, we're going to tend to be disappointed. And there's two kinds of people that will find themselves very disappointed. Are you ready for those two kinds of people? Yes, you're ready. Okay, here we go. Rebels and religious. Rebels are going to be disappointed with Jesus. Religious people are going to be disappointed with Jesus. Jesus knows that most people will not support his plan for redemption. And we're going to fall in one of two camps, or maybe we'll go back and forth depending on the week. Either rebellion or religion. Okay, let's start with rebellion. The grief of rebellion that fills Christ with sadness. Look again at Luke 19, beginning in verse 46. And by that, of course, I mean uh, verse 42. Jesus was drawing near the city, and it's such a strange way that this account is written because he's riding on this donkey, and people are shouting and praising and glorifying him, and he looks as he draws near the city, and he starts weeping. I mean, if you were there in that moment, wouldn't it seem very strange? I mean, they're shouting and praising him. He's riding on the donkey, weeping as he approaches the city. And listen to what he says. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. And the day will come upon you when your enemies are going to destroy you. He makes a prophecy about Jerusalem that comes true. In AD 70, he says to the people of Israel in that moment, filled with grief, Peace is coming to you, but you have no idea what peace is bringing to you. And this is the grief of rebellion, the the sadness that fills Christ. The rebellion says, I love God, but He doesn't take care of me the way He ought to. Rebellion is simply rejecting God and what He offers. And this started with Adam and Eve. They love the garden. At a certain point, though, they decided to operate the garden and see what life looked like without God involved. They still wanted the buffet. They just didn't want to have to ask God for it. They wanted God's stuff. They didn't want God. And this has been the rebellion that we've been having for all of time. We don't mind God's stuff, but God gets a little irritating from time to time. And rebellion is merely rejecting God and what He offers And so Jesus is coming to Israel, he's coming into Jerusalem, offering them the only peace that will last forever, freedom from sin, victory over death. And as is our custom, not merely the Jews, but every person who has ever lived, we said, really? With all the problems we're facing right now, you bring forgiveness. Do you not read the paper, Jesus? I don't know if you noticed this, but the Romans are killing people without interruption. I don't know if you noticed this, Jesus, but the temple is not being well taken care of. Jesus, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's a lot of injustice in the world around us. So listen, forgiving of sins and eternal—that's fantastic. You know that's great. That's good for Easter and Christmas. We'll come out, but we got real problems to deal with, Jesus. And Jesus is saying in weeping. If you only understood what brings real peace, his peace that he offers to every man, woman, and child through faith is forgiveness now and resurrection in the future. But what we want is all of our problems fixed now, and the forgiveness is fine, and the resurrection, that'll come in time. And the rebellion that's bound up in our heart says, God is a cheapskate. All he's offering is forgiveness. And Jesus is showing us the contrast of what is moving him. He says, you don't understand. I'm offering you the only thing you really need. And the grief of our rebellion fills his soul with sadness. Sometimes it's appropriate to allow the word of God to give us a slice into the heart of God and allow the weight of our rebellion on him to affect us. And I'm not saying we should live in some kind of depressed state but every now and then it is perfectly appropriate to say oh man I have I have really hurt him I put him on the cross we don't want to live in that place because he gives us peace over our forgiveness but we see in this moment the weight of our sin on him the the sadness our rebellion has caused in him we want peace but we want a different kind of peace and that rebellion wounds the heart of God where do we look for peace? Well, the thing is, we look for peace in lots of really good things. It's just these really good things are not ultimate things. It's the same places that they were looking for peace in the first century when Jesus was riding a donkey into Jerusalem. They were looking for peace, political peace. They were looking for the right decisions to violently be made at the upper echelons of political power. They were looking for financial peace. So they no longer have to worry about what's going to be available in the weeks and months ahead they were looking for peace in their relationships where parents would finally get along with children and wives would get along with husbands and there'd be no more rebellion in the homes and there would be no more brokenness in the families they were looking for peace at work where they could finally go to work do a good job work hard and actually make a profit and not have to toil and work and some days make a living another days not make a living They wanted peace to know that they had the right information, to have the right education. They wanted peace to know that every now and then they could take a day off and enjoy themselves. These are all things that we look for. These are good things which provide peace. And Jesus came and said, I will provide you peace that lasts forever, forgiveness of sins. And we said, but have you seen the government? It seems, okay, we're not going there. God, have you seen my checkbook? I, you know, Forgiveness is great. I'm glad I've forgiven. But God, at some point, there's got to be a change there. And Jesus comes bringing us forgiveness of our sins. This is what the Proverbs says in Proverbs eleven twenty eight. 28. Whoever trusts in his riches, and you could take all those categories I just mentioned and sort of substitute it in for riches. Whoever trusts in his politics, finances, work, family, education, will fall. But the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. So what you're supposed to say if you're reading that right is, that, well, I want to flourish, right? Anybody want to flourish? It's like two people, okay. Okay. Well, then what do we got to do? Well, we got to be righteous, right? now you got a problem, don't you? You're, not, you're lousy at being righteous. I think you're, if you're like me, you can do righteous for like five minutes if everybody else I know is asleep. Well, how am I going to flourish? I, I'm not going to be able to be righteous. I'm not even that good at behaving well. Never gonna be, how, I'm never going to flourish. And Jesus comes in, oh, I'll just make you righteous. And we say, well, Jesus, could you make me rich? I mean, that's what we do. I mean, if you're just honest, that's what we do. Jesus, will you just fix this relationship? Jesus, will you just give me a job? Jesus, will you just fix my kid? And these are all valid concerns, things that cause angst and worry and fear. We we all get it. But we think those not ultimate things will fix it. And Jesus says, I'm going to make you righteous so you can flourish so that I could set a table before you in the presence of your enemies. The world will be falling apart around you, and you'll be sitting at my table saying, Jesus has given me more than I could ever deserve. And Jesus strode into Jerusalem on a donkey, offering the ultimate peace we all needed. And in the end, we said, wow, you left heaven to give us that? We talked about it Wednesday night and I know you weren't all there so I'll mention it again so for you who are here Wednesday night uh, you can surf the web for a minute. You, you're saying, oh I already am so that, that fits. Okay. <laughs> Hosea is a great example in the Old Testament of redemption. Hosea was a prophet that God told Hosea to marry a woman who had a job. Um, <laughs> she was a prostitute. They had a baby, they named him Not Loved. They had another baby, they named him Not My People. Not a good family. Finally, she leaves him. And then God tells Hosea, go back and save your wife. Redeem her. So I don't have, I'm just off the cuff here, but it says what he got. He basically grabbed some gold coins, some silver coins, some barley, some wheat, a couple of buttons out of the junk drawer. But the way it's described, what he paid for, it, what it is, is he's scraping his cupboards for everything he can find, and he's going to scurry down to the place where he can redeem her, and he's just hoping he has enough. And so God looks down from heaven and sees us in our devastating condition, working, rebelling in our sin, and he's going through heaven scraping the cupboards. And finally, he says, it's "Not enough. We have to send my son. So that's the only thing that will pay for it." And the son rides in on the donkey. And we say, "Oh, that's it. Oh, that, Oh, huh. Oh, okay." And Christ's heart is broken. It's only by God's grace and the depth of the son's love for us that he didn't turn the donkey around and head out of town. Because he came to save sinners and rebels. But he's not going to hide the fact of what that did to him. And he wept. The grief of our rebellion is his heart filled with sadness. Sadness blinds rebels, but... I should say, sadness he has with uh, rebels, but what he expresses towards religious is not sadness, it's anger. Look with me towards the end of Luke 19, Luke 19, 45. Jesus goes into the temple. He enters the temple, and he starts driving out those who are selling. Let's just set the stage here and understand what they're doing. So what would happen is, you would go to the temple, and the worship required you to make offerings, and the Mosaic law required that you contribute a certain uh, amount of money, a certain kind of animals, and all these other sorts of things. So they came up with all these things. They said, What you can do is if you live far away, say you live up north in Galilee, and you've got your flawless lamb, it's kind of hard sometimes to trek a flawless lamb all the way down from Galilee. That's a long walk. I mean, it's a long drive, much less a long walk, right? Not only that, you could get down there if the thing breaks its leg on the way. So what they would do is they would offer lambs for sale in the um, uh, temple area. So you could leave your lamb at home, come to the temple, and buy a lamb. Now, I don't know if you've bought a lamb recently, uh, but lamb, the, the pricing at lamb, let's just, the, the lamb pricing in the temple, what let's just, it would have made 7-Eleven look cheap. You ever been short on milk, had to go to 7-Eleven for a half-gallon? Meal? What is in this? This had better heal all my diseases. <laughs> the price of this milk. What is going on? I can get 17 gallons of milk for that much at Costco. Well, that's right. They had 7 Eleven prices on lamb. It wasn't called 7 Eleven lambs. Don't it might have been. So you go in and, and they're ripping people off. And then you say, Well, I'm gonna go give my money. Well, they didn't have a common currency. Some people were coming to lots of different areas. They say, Oh, we only take one kind of money. And the exchange rate was always to the favor of the exchangers. Say, so, well, I need to donate 10 bucks to the temple. Okay, I'll give you 10 bucks in the temple currency. How much will that be? $100. Uh, what are you going to do with that other 90 bucks? Buy nice things for my family? Okay, as long as you're honest. And so they were, it was a rip-off. They were stealing from people. And not only that, they were making all of these obstacles for people to be able to worship God. And Jesus comes in and he says, my house is a house of prayer. This means my my house is supposed to be a place where the broken and the distraught and the lost can come in and throw themselves at the presence of God and he will hear them. There should not be an obstacle. There should be no obstacles for a person to walk into the presence of God and cry out and reach out. This is a place where we go into God in his presence. And the religious people at that time wanted to regulate who got to do that. They put obstacles in front of people that they might have difficulty accessing the Lord. And Jesus says, I am here to destroy all the obstacles between you and God. I am here to devastate any obstacle between you want to get to God, I will remove every obstacle, including your sin, including your rebellion, and including money changers. And Jesus destroys those obstacles, moved by grace, not for those religious obstacles people but moved by grace for those seeking the Lord but unable to get there because of the obstacles of the religious I'll say it this way a rebel says this in his heart you know I don't need God God can take a hike a religious person says you don't get God I'll take the rebel the religious person says you, you can have God on my terms The religious person robs. They rob here in the temple. They were robbing people of a lot of things, of money, of resource, of confidence, but mostly what they were robbing people of is God's grace, and Jesus would have none of it. Religion is always a trap. Religion is always a trap that seeks to put up obstacles between you and God, and trap you in a system that can never be figured out. Look at the last verse of chapter 19 in Luke. Of course, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the city wanted to kill him. They will seek to do so. They will not successfully kill him, but he will successfully voluntarily give up his life. They did not find anything they could do in that moment anyway, for all the people were hanging on His words. The good news, God saves sinners, God brings grace to the rebels who will seek Him. These are words we can hang on. That He loves us. Religion always destroys. And in the end, the religious want to destroy the redeemed. On that note, let's look over at Romans 8.31 by way of closing. We're going to sum up with this. Romans eight. 31. This is a verse you probably have memorized. Maybe this is one of the more popular, what we call cross-stitch verses. Guys, you cross-stitch? Or maybe I should say verses we paint on our Harley fuel tank. I don't know, whatever you. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We love that verse, and we should love that verse. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Amen? Amen. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who sinned this week? Me and Seth, apparently. Okay, a couple more. All right, we're in the party. God justifies. Who will bring a charge against you sinners? Satan will. Hey, God, you see him? He blew it again. He said that naughty, naughty, naughty word. And God says, forgiven. Paid for it. There was no accusation. It won't stick. Now God's going to graciously work with you maybe on how you talk. But he won't accuse you. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, this is verse 34 of Romans 8. More than that, who was raised, Who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. The plan all along was he was going to have to intercede for us. Isn't that crazy? He didn't just save us and fix us. He said, I'm going to save them. But they're not, like, I don't know, honed in yet. He says, that's fine, I'll just intercede for them. I mean, this is crazy. Who makes a religion like this? Nobody does, just God. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What's the answer? What's the answer? No, it can't. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now all of a sudden the passage is taking a turn. Can death separate us? No. No. The message we are believing, religious people hate. This is what they do. Well, maybe they can be reasonable. They will reasonably kill people who believe in Jesus. That is what they did to him, and what the Apostle Paul in Romans is saying we are being killed and regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So that means, of course, religious people win, right? No, look at verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am certain neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen? This is what Jesus does for us. He says, nothing will get between you and me. It will drive religious people nuts, and rebellious people don't want anything to do with it. But that is worthy of praise such that if you don't praise me, the rocks will. What do we do when Jesus disappoints? First thing we have to do is let the word of God do a work on our heart, that we might properly value the glory of his redemption if we properly understand the glory of his redemption, we will realize he is not disappointing. He has done more than we could possibly imagine. We should confront the realities of our heart in relation to our rebellion and our religion. When we look at our heart and we address the rebellion in our hearts, the question we have to ask ourselves, do we want Jesus or do we just want the peace and bounty he brings? Do we want Jesus... Or do we want security in our finances, security in our family, security in our job, security in our politics? And when we find out we don't really want Jesus, we want something else, we need to repent and say, Grieve me with my rebellion, Christ, to the degree it grieves you, that I might rest in your grace. Do we look into our heart and find any religion? Do you agree that Jesus came to offer grace for sinners, grace through the cross, but people in church need to be respectable, have their act together and fit in? Read Acts. Not a whole lot of respectability, act togetherness, or fitting inness. And if we look in our hearts and say, we want, we want Jesus, but I want other people who want Jesus who are just like me, we've missed the boat. On purpose, he's pulling a body of believers together who would not ordinarily want to be together. And when we identify in our heart that we only want to be Christians with other Christians like us, we need to rebuke the religion in our heart and say, Jesus, show me how I can reach out to sinners like me who aren't like me. Because of the grace of Christ, he brings in rebels like us. We can't make it but we can mend our sin and we can receive his forgiveness.